Hi, and welcome to Imperfect Utopias, based out of the UCL Global Governance Institute. This is a podcast about the challenges facing humanity and possible global responses. If you're new to the show and you want to get a list of our favourite books, other resources, listen to past shows and to join our community, go to ucl.ac.uk forward slash global dash governance. It's a real pleasure to have Mary Lawler here with us today. Uh, Mary has a long and distinguished career at the coalface of human rights advocacy. It's a particular pleasure for me as Mary has been an inspiration in my own research on human rights and was an early collaborator when I was a fresh young lecturer at Trinity College Dublin. Mary is the founder of Frontline Defenders, the leading human rights organisation in Ireland, which focuses on meeting the immediate security needs of human rights defenders at risk around the world. Uh, the ethos of that organisation reflects Mary's own philosophy, which has always placed defenders, those brave individuals, placing themselves in harm's way for their rights, the rights of others, at the heart of any strategy to build a more peaceful and uh, just society. Uh, she said that the informal DNA of frontline defenders was to be fast, flexible and furious in amplifying the voice of defenders and without doubt uh, they need support. These are dangerous times to be speaking out on human rights with hundreds of human rights defenders killed in 2019. Regimes of both democratic and authoritarian stripes increasingly brazen in attacking civil liberties and protections. In recognition of her work in the field, Mary has recently been appointed UN Special Rapporteur on the situation of human rights defenders. Just as the world has been engulfed in a major pandemic, she's very clear that COVID-19, the situation and the response to it poses an immediate threat to human rights defenders, uh, as well as highlighting a health rights crisis and the erosion of hard-won human rights protections around the world. Uh, In her words, it is in all our interest to protect the right, to defend rights. And we can't take that for granted, it seems, in this this time. So we have to find new ways of defending rights in a rapidly changing world order. And we have to do it quickly. We have to learn quickly, given a looming climate crisis and related risks. So lots to talk about, Mary. Um, Perhaps I could just begin by asking you to map out some of the major issues that are on your plate at the moment confronting human rights defenders in July 2020. I imagine some of those challenges are long-standing challenges and others, of course, like COVID-19, novel and very new. Yes, well, I've, uh, funnily enough, I've already done my report for the General Assembly because you need uh, they need about four or five months. And I had to do it like uh, within a month of being in the in the job. So. I had to think very fast uh, about what my priorities uh, were and are. Um, But that was helped by the fact that, you know, I've been around human rights defenders for a very long time and I know their situation. So the kind of things that I am going to concentrate on are, uh, first of all, COVID-19 and the impact on human rights defenders on COVID, because you can't ignore it. Um, Human rights defenders who are the most marginalized and the most vulnerable and in particular, you know, um, 
the the ones working in very remote areas often these are indigenous and land and environmental rights defenders so that would be a focus uh, along with other vulnerable groups like women lgbti uh, disability rights defenders and lately uh, we've just been starting to talk about children as human rights defenders particularly as climate justice and climate action has become such a such a big um, um, uh, looming uh, threat and uh, and then of course there's the old stalwarts like long-term prisoners and killings of human rights defenders two things that I feel very strongly about um, and and then of course linked to killings and linked to indigenous and land and environment are business it's business and human rights so they're all interconnected there and reprisals against offenders who cooperate with the UN. Uh, so they're the kind of things, but I'm also particularly interested in when, when we're talking about killings and business and human rights and uh, land environmental and all of that kind of stuff, in tracing how a threat develops into a killing, because in 85% of the cases of people who've been killed, it has been preceded by a threat and in 75% of cases, there has been a physical attack. And this offline and online kind of attack sets human rights defenders up to be attacked and creates an environment where it's okay for them to be attacked. And then eventually they're killed. And it's certainly uh, frontline defenders, um, they documented over about 304 defenders last year who were murdered and 13% of them were women and 40% of them were land, environmental and indigenous people. So that's really what, what I'm doing now mm -hmm. at the moment. I mean, yeah, it's <laughs> quite, quite a lot on your plate. I mean, it's almost, it must sometimes seem a little bit overwhelming that you have so many different constituencies, of course, who, who need protection, who need, need assistance. Uh, to what extent do you feel that uh, there's, there's some consensus in the human rights movement around what the biggest challenges, what the principal focus in terms of strategy to assist these people should actually be. Well, I think at the moment, everyone is talking about COVID. I mean, um, uh, even tomorrow, I'm doing a, a webinar with uh, special mandates on freedom of expression and uh, freedom of association. But it's not just, you know, us. It's it's everyone is talking about COVID. And how can you not talk about it? I mean, it has been an unseen, invisible enemy. And not that I'm looking on the bright side of it or anything, but it did show how it can affect even the most powerful people and that um, populist or corrupt governments cannot control it just by stamping down their big bully feet and uh, so um, uh, but it has created more challenges so for example you know we've been talking to uh, uh, defenders every day online pretty much since April since once I was kind of once I, I basically was told I was getting the job. I started talking to human rights defenders from the five regions. And uh, of course, they're all now having to work exclusively online. And that can have security implications for them because people know where they are. 
they know that they're not out and about, that they're stuck inside. And so they're more, more vulnerable than they would be uh, if than if they were going outside. And women human rights defenders, particularly in patriarchal com uh, countries where often the threats come from within their own family and community are more at risk during this time. And, and then there's like, there's death threats. Ruth Mumby in Kenya, for example, she's a, she's a woman who works uh, normally in informal settlements for the rights of women. And uh, there was uh, an eviction in uh, Nairobi um, uh, of all these uh, women, uh, an illegal eviction. And Ruth uh, decided she would gather some money for, um, food and uh, basic supplies for them. And as a result, she got death threats from the police. And um, despite, uh, the, and this was despite the government saying it would stop evictions, they, they were still, these women were still evicted. And then there's laws everywhere. Cambodia has brought in laws. You can't, there's no, um, on, you're not allowed any online stuff. And, also, you know, there's no, obviously no meetings are allowed. Now, obviously with the pandemic, you need a lot of this stuff. But then there's Russia that has the biggest camera surveillance with facial recognition, more of it brought in. Israel, who started cooperating with the NSO uh, agency, which has been supplying malware uh, to governments for surveillance for a long time. These are the kind of things that are happening. And many human rights defenders have shifted from advocacy to humanitarian, um, you know, to supplying food and medicine within their communities. Uh, and some of them are still struggling to work online. And then in some countries, of course, it's very expensive to buy data. So for example, in Ethiopia, and of course, internet connections are, are, are not good in many countries, including my own. And uh, for example, yesterday I was talking, <laughs> we were talking to defenders uh, from, uh, from uh, working on extractive industry. And um, there was, you know, the internet was going in and out. The, uh, there were dogs barking. Where people hammering, so it's very. It can be very difficult. And one of the things that shocked me was that these defenders were saying that they're being staked out by um, uh, illegal uh, loggers and um, settlers of of uh, extractive uh, people wanting to, you know, uh, come in and appropriate their land for something. Because they know they're 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 uh, you know they're unable to protest, they're unable to do anything. So it has that kind of effect. And then in the Amazon, particularly, a lot of the defenders have got COVID, so they're already weakened. So their lands are being taken over as well. And of course, then there's the economic uh, situation for defenders. They don't know if they're going to be able to continue to get funds to do their work. Uh, and uh, and medics, like you know, uh, the, the the terrible thing about medics in in countries like Egypt and Russia, they've been punished for speaking out uh, against the virus, as have journalists, as you know. So um, and then of course there's the prisoners, you know, all the human rights defenders who are in jail. Azam Jan Askarov, his last appeal to the Supreme Court has been denied. Where which country um, was that in, Mary? That was in. Um, Kyrgyzstan. Right. 
And that happened, and he's quite elderly and frail. He's been in prison since 2012. And then there's, for example, in Iran, there's three women, Nazrin Satuda, Etina Diami. Etima Diami was supposed to be released just the fourth, which I think was last Saturday, uh, after serving five years. But they, they brought her to court and put another two years on her sentence. One was for disrupting prison order and one year and the other was a kind of enemy of the state stuff so she's just got another two years and Naj Mohammadi who has a very long prison sentence is also there so you know there's so many uh, issues that arise solely from COVID uh, or maybe not always solely from COVID but exacerbated by yeah by, uh, I mean, it's, I mean, uh, you know, I think it's characteristic of your work and your approach that you're very close to the ground and and that you are seeking to reach out and to be present in, with these people's situations in all sorts of different countries. Uh, and I, I wonder whether, I mean, COVID has obviously dominated now the agenda, but it seems as if it, it is really accelerating what were already quite serious acute human rights issues in these settings. Mm. And I, I mm. do wonder to what extent you know, there's, we often talk about shrinking space for civil society, for human rights defenders, as if the 1990s were some kind of halcyon age, if you will. Um, I mean, in your view, to what extent do we see an acceleration of sort of continuity or continuity of, of human rights pushback and perhaps quite sophisticated attempts to, to repress human rights advocacy or do we actually see something new emerging when it comes to the, the sort of threat environment that's faced by human rights defenders? Well, it's always very difficult to be um, to, to be categoric about this because on the one hand, we've been seeing the shrinking space for many years now. I think there's about 84 countries that have been brought in laws. You probably know better than I do, but I know uh, you know that uh, what is it? ICNL isn't that the they're tracking it with the with the uh, special rapporteur on counterterrorism. They they have a project, um, great website for any of your students. Um, uh, so you can see how these uh, uh, laws have been brought in to neutralise and prevent human rights defenders from carrying out their legitimate work. And in your introduction, you said the right to defend human rights, and that's a message that I think we have to keep really you know plugging that everyone has a legitimate right to defend human rights so i mean if you were to ask me you see i started in the 70s and like in the 70s there was no internet you know everything was written and uh, uh, i remember in an urgent case i was with amnesty international at the time there was one fax machine uh, in, in Dublin that an Amnesty member had. And, uh, I, well, there were more than one, but there were, you know, fax machines had just come in. And the only person in Amnesty that we knew was a solicitor who had a, a, a fax machine. So I'd race over into his office, uh, you know, and send a fax. And it was like, nowadays you have such advantages you know i know there are terrible disadvantages but there are great advantages to the internet and to the speed at which uh, information can be shared or uh, i'm not talking about fake information but i also remember with justina makuko a, a woman in zimbabwe who was disappeared um and it was the zim lawyers for human rights that were working on her case 
And in those days, I was, I was in, this was about 30 years ago. And in those days, you know, you'd be trying to ring up to find out what's going on and the lawyers would be busy and they wouldn't want to be talking to people all over the world asking them what's going on, you know, and you'd be trying to follow the information. And then when Facebook came in, um, they set up a page because uh, this woman was, she, she was often, you know, um, a threat. Um, and they set up a page, sorry, the first time she hadn't been disappeared, but the second time when Facebook was uh, up and running, they set up a page and um, it was great. They just posted stuff on the page and you could see it immediately. You know, and that's a great tool for, for uh, human rights work. And there are more and more people involved in human rights work now than there ever were before. But if you were to look back at the 70s, like sure, the place was surrounded by dictatorships, you know, um, you had all the generals running Latin America, you had a dictatorship in Indonesia, uh, you had apartheid in South Africa, uh, the Soviet Union, you know, had most of Eastern, controlled most of Eastern Europe and beyond. So like it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, uh, it was really bad then too, you know, and yes, gains were made, probably there was a, a short window, but but their violations are always with us and will always be with us, I think, you know, and hmm. so I wouldn't be, I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, think that it's insurmountable at all. I mean, maybe that historical perspective brings home just how high the stakes are, though. Uh, how important it is to to fight the battles, to to hold the line, and to try and prevent slight backsliding in terms of civil liberties and human rights protections. And a lot of analysts yeah. are now talking about, you know, a new Cold War 2.0, a retreat into nationalist populism, a liberal politics, and clearly that is a that is potentially very serious for human rights protections. Yeah. Well, I mean, one doesn't like to be um, rude about some of the populist presidents that we have around the place. And of course, they're all learning from each other as well. And each one seems to encourage the other. And there is a retreat. Um, there's no doubt about that. But, but, uh, but you know, Seamus Heaney, the Irish poet, he said, um, he said we were put on in this world uh, to improve civilization. And my friend Frank Jennings, who sadly died of a brain tumor, one of my um, best friends and mentors, he said to, I, I always remember him saying to me, Mary, we have to choose civilization every day. And there are really, like, I mean, there are more good people than bad people in the world. So like, it's not all bleak and hopeless. And I suppose the thing is we have to, as you say, fight uh, to arrest this kind of um, uh, slide back um, uh, against international standards by rem reminding governments uh, that they have agreed to you know, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the Covenants, all of that kind of stuff, and uh, and they 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 are they have international obligations they freely accepted. Now, how they choose to exercise those international obligations, of course, is a different matter. Uh, 
it seems to me that it's a kind of like uh, it's all very well you can be very I, I, I always get amused when a government that is not perfect points the finger at another government and uh, and it with uh, and and it's almost like um, you know and they're, they're, they're quite genuine in it but when it comes to their own stuff they 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 can't take it and they don't it's not as if they have they're not thick-skinned you know they, governments know they're not perfect they know there's an awful lot they are doing wrong they know they should be improving they know they should be sticking to international standards they know that they have said they uh, accept you know international standards and have ratified many international standards but their idea of implementing them when it suits them because of their political and strategic interests they don't and i mean on that note of holding governments to account of course you now find yourself being a sort of insider outsider within the un system yeah. i mean kopi annan mm. has described the un special rapporteurs as the crown jewels of this human rights regime and I, i'd be curious to know did you have a good sense of what the role would entail before being appointed and how have you found it? How, how are you approaching the task of, you know, strategizing as well as outreach to government, as well as obviously uh, not giving up on basic principles? Yeah, well, it's, a, it's difficult at the moment because there's no meetings and, you know, everything is online. Um, but for example, um, and I have to, I, I think this is the third time in my life I've had to reinvent myself because the first one I think was, you know, when I joined Amnesty as a, a director or as chairperson it was in those days because we didn't have a paid staff for several years and, uh, or, yeah. So it was completely voluntary when I joined. Um, uh, and then I got money, so we, we got an office and started to build Amnesty in Ireland and all of that. And uh, and then, um, uh, so then you were part of a big um, institution, like Amnesty is a big institution and quite bureaucratic in its ways. So you have to work within the framework of that institution. And I remember getting into trouble the odd time. And then I left to set up Frontline and I realized that you really had to change your mindset completely because if human rights defenders are in danger, you can't be hanging around forever, you know, uh, writing a letter um, and hoping something good happens. You have to act uh, very quickly and in a flexible way. So then anyway, so now I'm special rapporteur and that is completely different again. It has elements of, I suppose, uh, the institutionality of Amnesty International in the old days. It's probably changed much more now. Um, and it has nothing of Frontline, you know, because Frontline was a very, is a very uh, fast, flexible organization. The UN is beset by rules, by procedures, by what you're allowed to do, by what you're not allowed to do. So I am trying to learn how to navigate the system. Uh, the UN system is, is really, um, it's really difficult as far as I'm concerned, you know, um, 
And I'm trying to work out what is the added value that I can bring as special rapporteur. And I think the added value that I can bring is the increased access to governance, that perhaps I'll be able to make small um, differences uh, to human rights defenders. And I'm also bringing an activist approach and a people-centered approach to the mandate. So I don't know how I'm going to get on. Um, and it's, it's quite, uh, it can be quite daunting. For example, Costa Rica, which is a country that isn't bad at all. Uh, the ambassador of Costa Rica uh, asked me lately to change a press release I'd written, um, you know, uh, in which the word impunity was used. And I, I read the press release and I decided I'd take out a quote that had impunity in it because I, I had said pattern of impunity and I thought that wasn't fair. And, um, but I left it in the headline of the press release. But these are, she, like she rang me to ask me to do this. So these are the kind of pushbacks you're getting, you know, from states. And she was very nice about it. She made it clear she wasn't trying to interfere. Uh, with the independence of the mandate, but she she wanted to she wanted basically to give me information about what the government was doing, and that is I think the role, uh, you know, if you can if you can bring the concerns of human rights defenders to governments, and you can get them to put in place something a bit better than they have to help protect these human rights defenders. Well, that's the most you can hope for. But the UN as a protection agency would, you know, it, 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 it's, it's, it, it's not set up. It's not designed to be like that, I think. Mm, yeah, I mean, I, I, I wonder how many uh, government officials were ringing you up at frontline defenders to complain about annual reports or to, to, to seek to, to inform your views. I guess that is quite a contrast. Uh, yeah, no, nobody, you know, you, you did all the running in, in frontline to governments, but really there were only, you know, you just wrote off to your oppressive government about whatever case it was or your European Union about, you know, whatever it was uh, um, that you'd like them as uh, the EAS delegations to take action. But it was always very at a distance, apart from the ones you knew, like the ones that, um, have human rights defenders as an uh, as a priority, like Ireland and Norway, and a few like that. But um, but here, like I'm hoping that, and and of course in Geneva, you would meet some um, some ambassadors that uh, they don't they would speak to. I used to go into the council, and I would go up to them where they were sitting and ask them, um, could I have a, a word with them and. Uh, and you see, they're, they're, they're very well trained and they're very polite. So they'll always say yes. And certainly, I always remember, I was very proud, the Iranians introduced me to the Chinese and told them that they should talk to me because I was a good woman. <laughs> well, that's quite the, quite the recommendation. <laughs> that was funny. And I, I, you know, when we look at the UN, it seems as if the the sort of global Samaritans, the Costa Ricas, the Norways, are a bit of a dwindling community, and there's a lot there's a lot more ambivalence, if you will, among 
countries who previously were really sort of important reference points for, for human rights, uh, I think, defenders and protections within the UN system. Yeah. I wonder whether, you know, for some that's been a bit of a shock, you know, that through the 1990s, more than nine uh, sort of beacons of human rights. And we could think of a number of very powerful countries that perhaps have shifted away from that position in recent years. But uh, in, given your experience working with, with human rights defenders in unstable, dangerous contexts, uh, having to try and appeal to political leaders who perhaps don't, would rather just not know about human rights violations or just don't care about them. I wonder whether that does give you uh, a little bit more insight into how to apply pressure in this more challenging context. Uh, well, you know, I am reminded of this wonderful Israeli uh, human rights defender. Uh, he ran, he was rabbis for human rights. I can't remember his name. But <laughs> I remember, uh, you know, I, we were uh, we were talking in um, Jerusalem, and she said to me, Mary, he said, in the old days, I was very strategic about everything. I would think it out. I would say, this is what I have to do, and I would do it. Now he says, I just scatter everything and hope something kind of sticks. And you know, there's a lot uh, there's a lot to be said for that because you you never know. In my life, I found you never know what will bring a small change. Uh, I mean, if you look at Ireland, for example, when I was director of Amnesty, we had the death penalty. We had uh, we didn't have the ratification of the covenants um, until the 70s. There was a bar on married women in uh, 73, a bar on married women. Uh, so they had to give up their jobs once they were married. You know, they couldn't sit on juries. There was no access to contraception. Now we have equal marriage and we have access to reproductive rights. So things do move on. You know, they can go back and they can, and I always think with Latin America, you know, when all those dictators were there and bit by bit, the countries became more de democratic. Obviously they are not, you couldn't call a lot of them proper democracies. But at least they're not full dictatorships and you aren't having all those people in Argentina going missing or, you know, uh, bodies dropped over the sea or the, the, the slaughter of Mayan villages or, you know, that sort of thing. So and the UN has withstood everything, uh, despite all these uh, political uh uh, political challenges along the way, depending on whether it was the coal, you know, depending on what it was. But they seem to have come through difficult times before, like they, they survived the Cold War, for example. And, uh, you know, it is difficult, but um, I think that all you can do is keep plugging away. You have to be resilient and you have to be persistent and you have to keep doing it. As they say, if the UN didn't exist, someone would have to create it. Exactly. Uh, yeah. There's some truth to that. Uh, I, yeah. as you, also, I think, as you're suggesting, you, you know, it's important not to get too swept away by the current historical juncture uh, to put it in, into that kind of that, that longer sweep and, and have context. Uh, I think there's a lot of colleagues, uh, and myself included, who are who are looking at mul the multilateral system and really seeing that it is it is creaking, particularly when it comes to providing these kinds of protections, human rights protections, other public goods such as say 
biodiversity preservation, climate change, and so on. And I mean, to, to the extent to which some of those transnational challenges perhaps exceed the potential of a system premised on nation-state governments, there might be a there might be, a, I suppose, a new generation of challenges and risks, which are going to require real innovation and real a lot of hard thinking about how to galvanize decentralized networks, transnational action that, in a way, uh, I suppose, operates beneath around um, the sort of multilateral system. But ultimately, the multilateral system, I, I, I imagine, will remain. Uh, an important part of 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 the solution. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the big multinationals, the big transnationals, you know, they're more powerful than governments in many cases, and um, and uh, like even last week, I was talking to somebody. Um, and the local police were being being paid off by the companies, you know. So, and this is happening, you know. We, we all know about the link, the corruption link between business and governments and local officials and all that sort of thing. But again, even in that area, um, and I do think there has to be a twin track approach. You know, I I don't think there's much point in trying to reinvent the system. I think if you just stuck to what you had and uh, and did it in uh, and implemented uh, you know the rules about how people should behave because they're there like it's not as if they're not there <laughs> but they don't use so okay you could spend an awful lot of time trying to think about well what will you come up with that will make people behave better um and what would happen? Uh, in my view, you'd still be stuck with the implementation because uh, it's 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 uh, you, people governments. You know, they're I really truly believe you know their political and strategic interests, and their and also I'm afraid that whole notion of power corrupting. You know, we're not going to make sense out of these people. You know. So, um, so, but with business and human rights, like there are there are moves afoot. I mean, there is the draft uh, UN Global Treaty on Business and Human Rights. I know that won't be for a long time, and even then, it won't probably be implemented. But, um, but there is a drive. You know, there like there is a hundred and seventy five uh, investors led by the Investor Alliance for Human Rights. Um, which include asset managers and pensions and public funds and faith-based institutions. And these are representing $4.5 trillion. And they've sent a letter to all um, 95 major multinational companies calling for improved performance and disclosure on human rights due diligence. Like that kind of thing is new and that's growing. This whole thing about ESG in, in investing is growing. On the other hand, like you saw, the European Commissioner um, is going to bring in mandatory human rights due diligence for the EU um, next uh, 2021. So again, they're small steps, but they're important steps. And certainly in some of the Latin American countries, uh, you know, they they are concerned about um, the the rise of this 
the influence of 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 of, uh, of companies and of course china is eating up everywhere and all these canadian actually in a couple of weeks i'm going i've been asked to talk to three uh companies in colombia glencore which of course has a rotten record uh, i can't remember the other two i haven't done my research on on it all yet but this again is a sign that they feel they want to engage with you mm, yeah. um, they want to but they what they say now i know it's a lot of it is what i call uh it's probably mean of me but you know uh corporate social responsibility that they all love to play corporate social responsibility but not business and human rights and I, I think corporate social responsibility is all about PR and trying to make yourself look good in the community. Now, obviously, there are things that are very valuable, like when they get involved in the community and help with um, painting schools or giving health care to somebody or whatever. That's all good. But it, it's from the bottom down. It's not from the ground up. And the whole thing about business and human rights is it is from the ground up. It's putting the communities affected by whatever a company is doing at the centre and in, insisting they have free prior informed um, participation and that the stuff is, that's produced by the company is even in a language that they understand you know uh, but again like t 10 years ago no company would have been wanting to talk to you about uh, how can they improve their performance in Colombia yeah, I mean Colombia is one of the deadliest places in the world for human rights defenders and uh, there is certainly a lot of conflict around extractive operations in that country and others in the region, of yeah. course. And the reticence of business to engage a human rights agenda, I imagine, might be because human rights invokes legal obligations. Although, of course, when it comes to, say, pillar three of the uh, guiding principles, pillar three is often the the kind of the, the the right to remedy that's the one that sort of falls through the cracks often because of very dysfunctional judicial systems so the yeah. problem is is deeply rooted and uh, it, it it does engage issues around essentially the, the domestic politics of justice and human rights and the un is of course can be a quite a distant pair in that uh, in that political contest hmm yeah, and I mean, I think um, the, the, the there are a couple of things that come to mind there. I mean, the UN is definitely under threat because, um, you know, there are so many um, big players who aren't paying their dues for a start. So it's completely bankrupt as far, well, not completely bankrupt, but it's it got severe budgetary issues. Um and you have a secretary general at the moment who, who is in many ways afraid to speak out. Uh, and you have a high commissioner for human rights who, in my view, was brought in um, to not to, uh, more as a politician uh, rather than Zaid, the previous high commissioner for human rights, who was very outspoken. So you see this kind of... Uh, this trend throughout the throughout the UN, um, and uh, and that is deeply worrying. There's no 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 way around it. And it's worrying, um, perhaps, also because it's quite easy for academics and and others 
uh, to retreat into questions of legal obligation. When, for instance, in my recent research in the Philippines, I was struck by the amount of support that Rodrigo Duterte has in the, the general public. Yeah. And it's not really about human rights as legal claims. It's about, it's about having to engage in, you know, robust political and moral argumentation yeah. to drive forward exactly. political struggles. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you read the, the report on the Philippines that OHCHR did was actually really great. Right down to the threats that human rights defenders were getting, we, we got a whole load of, um, I mean, we, we asked for them because we were in touch with Philippine um, defenders, but we also got the ones that were in the OHCHR report because they're very graphic and you can see them. Um, uh, and that man, I, I mean, it is extraordinary. These populist presidents, they seem to have tapped into something uh, where they have the support of society. And this is, you know, this is, I mean, it's extraordinary that, for example, health workers, we were talking to health workers in the Philippines uh, who were in danger because of their work. And he has them red tagged. He says they're all communists and they're enemies of the state. And, you know, and he actually in one speech said that he was coming after human rights defenders. I can't remember the exact wording, whether he said they should be killed or not, but it was like a serious threat. Um, and, and that kind of stuff, you, you do wonder um, when you talk about... Uh, all of this, it seems to me that the legal framework, going back to what you were saying, you know, putting everything in a legal framework isn't enough. You have to find creative ways. And I think uh, you need, I think we have to start with the children. I think we have to do really serious human rights education with children from the word go. I think we have to use the arts. I think we have to have different entry points into human rights where people will understand that they're really talking about protecting the rights of the people they love and themselves. And in a climate context, you know, certainly placing yeah. children's rights at the heart of, of that agenda, you know, what will the world look like in 2050 from a human rights perspective? How yeah. will that impact your children? Surely that you, you would imagine that would resonate. Well, you would imagine, but uh, so far, but you know, I don't, I don't know. Uh, there seems to be a growing movement, as you know yourself, of young people and children um, who have adopted climate change as uh, the issue that they're most concerned about, um, and uh, certainly they are beginning to to mobilise in in different countries. Um, uh, for me, I've been asked about, you know, the definition. Is it okay? Is, is it enough if they're just defending their own rights? But for me, it isn't. They have to be defending the rights of others. So, for example, one of the examples, I was at this on this child rights webinar the other week, an example that somebody gave, asked me, like, uh, um, a, a three schoolgirls going to the father of a friend of theirs that was going to be um, uh, sold off as a, a, a as a child bride, would they be human rights defenders? And I said, yes, they would be for human rights defenders, particularly if they were harassed or intimidated by the father. But if if it, there's, it's very, it's a very difficult, um, it's a loaded 
children as human rights defenders is is tricky you know at what stage how how you know do they have progressive autonomy are their parents you know where what is the role of parents in deciding what they should and shouldn't do all that kind of stuff mm. it's very tricky yeah, so i mean the, 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 but but back to the back to the legal standards i mean if you talk about um presenting human rights in a different way i agree with you fully that we should get rid of the language because i do think that is inaccessible to a lot of people uh, i've started the, the you know i've started to talk about health workers, both doctors, nurses, porters, cleaners, anybody who has put themselves in danger during COVID as human rights defenders, in a way to, I suppose, show that um, people who are, because everyone under, everyone loved the doctors and the nurses and the cleaners and the porters, certainly in 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 uh, around uh, Europe and North America and also in Africa and Asia, you know, you could see it. Actually, there were a group of forty nurses uh, were arrested for protesting in in uh, Uganda yesterday because they didn't have enough uh, personal protective equipment. Mm. But you can you can see how the idea of if you can make a link, I think anyway, if you can make a link between people that people look up to, you know, as human rights defenders and try and, I, I really don't know how, how you get rid of this um, support and uh, the, the way these populist presidents manage to reach people by playing on their fears. I really don't know how you get that. We're, we're working with Facebook at the moment about online threats mm -hmm. and um, trying to work out how we can uh, stop uh, with Facebook's help um, online threats. Well, we'll see how that goes. Yeah, well, it sounds like a really important focus for for our students to, to perhaps keep in mind as to, well, these are frontier concerns for practitioners in the human rights field. I know you've got a pressing engagement, Mary, with a government delegation shortly, but I just want to perhaps finish with, with a question directed towards our student audience. I mean, what do you think a student needs to become a specialist in human rights today? And, and how can they best orientate themselves to understand the real challenges that are confronting human rights defenders? Or put it differently, what questions should they be asking? I'm afraid that you're probably asking the wrong person because um, I learned everything as I went along. You know, I got into human rights kind of by default. Um, Sean McBride, who was a who was a, a barrister here and form, he won actually won the Nobel Peace Prize, the American Medal of Justice, and the Lenin Peace Prize. He was. Uh, one of the founding members of Amnesty. Uh, I knew him. So it was kind of by default I got involved. And then, you know, bit by bit, you, you can't, it, it drags you in. And you realize that uh, you can do something. And the questions will come to you as you go along. You know, there's a, there's a fantastic um, quote. Let me, can I, can I just get it? Because Oops. I looked it up for my daughter. Um, here, I have to get it on this. I sent it to myself. Um, 
there's a fantastic quote that uh, I uh, sent my daughter today um, because I wanted her to, um, I just wanted her to have it. I thought uh, it would be good for her. Um, sorry. We should put Shima Saini in the, in the show notes as well. He's got some, some oh, yeah. poetry. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Concerning all acts of initiative and creation, there is one elementary truth the ignorance of which kills countless ideas and splendid plans, that the moment one definitely commits oneself, then providence moves too. All sorts of things occur to help one that would never otherwise have occurred. A whole stream of events issues from the decision, raising in one's favor all manner of unseen incidents, meetings and material assistance, which no man, could have dreamed would ever have become his way. And I think for a student, yeah, you, 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 you don't get bogged down in, oh God, how do I work this out? How do I work that out? How will I apply this legal framework? How will I do that? Make the decision that you want to do something and then learn as you go along. Get, get, uh, get field, uh, you know, get country experience, go and, work with some people on the ground if possible just to get a feel for the for the daily lived reality of human rights defenders rather than learning about it from textbooks and the getting immersed in all the legal standards uh, which you still need to be able to apply um, but, but but bringing it down um uh, to to a level where you can see what they're doing why they're doing it and how they're doing it. Um, and I think that way, um, that way, it, it, it will just, um, it will become clear as they go along. And you don't have to know everything immediately. You just do learn it as you go along. There's a line in a Theodore Rothke poem, I learn by going where I have to go. And I think that's really all you can do, hmm. you know? Well, I guess if we knew all the answers, you know, it wouldn't be such a mess, would it? So <laughs> that sounds like good advice. You keep an open mind, keep learning. Yeah. Great. Yeah, I suppose so. Great. Well, thank you so much, Mary, for your time. Really appreciate it. I hope we'll get another chance to chat. Best, best wishes. Yeah. Good luck with the work, and and uh, yeah, we'll be following. We'll be following your work. Okay. And what's going on? Thanks so much. Thanks a million. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to Imperfect Utopias. To get access to all of our content and to stay up to date with future Zoom calls, workshops and events and more, check us out at ucl.ac.uk forward slash global dash governance. If you like this content, please do leave us a comment and subscribe. Till next time.